Well, Evie and I are so appreciative of this body. Uh, been here 21 years, and we uh, as I look around the room. There's so many here that we have known and loved, and you have ministered to us, to our family. Um, this church really strives to live up to its mission to prepare and deploy uh, dependent disciples of Jesus Christ, and. Um, and so we are just so grateful, and we love this, uh, we love this church so much. And you know what? It could, it could be a worse place to be deployed to than Shenandoah County. I mean, the beautiful mountains down there, the rivers, like we're, we are excited too, to, to be down there and to get to know those people. So um, let me open up with a word of prayer, and we'll get into today's sermon. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you, Father, for the way that you do work in our lives. Um, Lord, I thank you for bringing us into a, your family, into this body. Um, Lord, I thank you for Fellowship Bible Church and what you are doing here. And just pray that you continue this great work, uh, your work. And Lord, as we open up today to Romans 13, Father, I just pray that you would teach us, Lord, what it means for us to live in this world in a way that uh, lifts your name on high, that glorifies you, that proclaims your excellencies. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, Mark introduced us to, uh, this set the stage for us, really painted a, a, an important backdrop for us to get into Romans chapter 13 and, and really look at and understand what it means. And so I want to quickly remind us what he took us through last week. Um, if you missed it, I recommend going back and watching the sermon because I'm not going to do it justice. But I want to remind us of those six key truths to consider regarding nations and governments that Mark took us through. One of those was that nations arose because of God's judgment. Nation states were not part of the original good creation of God. It was a judgment he brought to limit the heights of evil that mankind could reach if we were all united as one people. Another truth was only one nation can claim to be God's inheritance. He raises up a nation for his own out of an obscure man from an obscure place and says, you will be mine. All other nations are allotted to Satan and his demonic realm. That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Satan works through these world systems and governments to bring about his evil. And yes, even in the United States of America... One day, here was another truth, a fourth truth. One day, Jesus Christ will be given all the nations as his inheritance and will reign supreme over all on this earth. A fifth truth was God still holds ultimate sovereign authority over all things, even now as Satan works his uh, authority within the state governments. God is the one that raises up rulers and authorities. He's the one that works through nation states to bring about his purposes, even in their evil. God is sovereign over all. And the final truth was Christians are citizens of heaven and should conduct themselves accordingly. And we're going to look at that particularly uh, this morning as we look at Romans 13. But before we get to Romans 13, there's a couple more I want to bridge from Mark's sermon last week into where I want to go this morning. And I want to focus on this idea of the whole world lying in the grip of the evil one. There are some implications from that that I want to look at, some other little truths that pertain to that thing. And the first truth I want us to consider is that these evil systems of the world are restrained 
by the, and the amount of evil they can do by the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world in the church. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this as he's speaking of this coming day where this man of sin, this man of lawlessness will be raised up and, and will claim and take over rulership of the world. He says this, he says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is removed. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. I think the he that's being referred to there is the Holy Spirit and his presence in the church. So our presence in this world, the church's presence in this world, has a restraining influence. It's holding back the amount of lawlessness that the man of sin will be able to accomplish. And that will happen one day when the church is removed. Another key thing to remember as Satan is prowling through these nations and world systems is that this world hates us. It hates you as a believer. It hates me as a believer. And Jesus said this himself in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, why does the world hate the church? It's restraining the evil that can be accomplished in this world. And so there is a hatred against the church, against the restraining uh, the influence that the church is having in the world. So Satan and his forces and these systems that he puts in place through these nations, it stands against the church. It stands against us as believers. It stands against us because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Another key thought to, uh, for us to have is that we as believers now, we are pilgrims in a foreign land. This world is not our home. And by world, I mean this world system that is under the influence of Satan and the demonic realm, that is not our home anymore. We are pilgrims, we are ambassadors, we are missionaries within a foreign, hostile world system. We've been rescued from that world system. Colossians chapter 1 says it this way, that we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. See, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are made part of his body, the church. We are transferred out of this domain of darkness, this domain that is ruled by the evil one and under his influence. We are no longer citizens. We are no longer identified with that kingdom. We are now citizens of a kingdom of, of Jesus. We are now brought into to his kingdom of light because we are now associated with Jesus. We are, we are citizens of his now. And so as we go through this world, we are ambassadors, we are missionaries, we are pilgrims in a foreign land that hates us. It is hostile to us. And we are restraining the evil presence in this domain of darkness that we are living in as missionaries of light. 
And we are in a battle. This is another truth I want us to understand. We are in a battle as the church. And this isn't a political battle. It's not a battle for Democrats or Republicans. It's not a battle for uh, politics and policies. It is a spiritual battle that we fight against rulers and authorities. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. So we are pilgrims living in hostile territory, in a domain of darkness, citizens of a kingdom of light of heaven. And we are going to be under attack from a world system that hates us, that is being dominated by evil forces. And our job is to be light in this darkness. And so that backdrop then, as we come, if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 first, because as we get to Romans 13, it's so important for us to remember, often we go to Romans 13 and we pluck that out as, the, as a proof text for our relationship with government. But Romans 13 happens in a context, and it flows out of Paul's thoughts in Romans 12. It, it flows from what he has been teaching us. And so I want to quickly run us through what was Paul teaching us through Romans 12. And he was teaching us to live a transformed life by the renewing of our mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not, listen to this, do not be conformed to this world. See, we are, we are foreigners living in this domain of darkness, this world system. And he's saying, don't be conformed to the systems this world puts in place. Don't allow our minds, our thinking to conform to their way of thinking, but be renewed. And he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what does this transformed life look like? As he goes through the chapter, he says it looks like humility in verse 3. He says not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. He says it looks like unity of the church. Down in verse 5, he says we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's what a transformed life looks like. The world will seek to divide and conquer a renewed, renewed mind in Christ says, no, we are one body, we are unified, we are members of one another. Paul goes down in verse 10, he says, this transformed life is marked by love. Be devoted, he says in verse 10, to one another in brotherly love. That is a renewed mind that's different, it's not conformed to the world. He ends the chapter by calling us to a couple of things as a church. Number one, be peace seekers. Down in verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Now, Paul knows, because he's taken us to chapter 13, that we are foreigners living in hostile territory, engaged in a spiritual battle, and yet he calls us to be at peace with all people as far as it depends on us to be a united body at peace. 
with people that are hostile to us. And then he goes on to say, and this requires such great faith of the church because we, he's requiring us to, in how to respond to the face of evil. And he finishes off the chapter, says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is his, he will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And so doing it, be he burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is where Paul now leads into chapter 13 and our role with the government. And it flows out of this very thought of we are people that are marked by seeking peace and not overcoming evil with evil. Leaving vengeance to the Lord, letting him be the one that steps in. And that requires faith for us to do that. I've got to believe that God has my back. If I'm not going to allow my flesh to rise up and defend myself and get angry and push back when somebody pushes me, I've got to trust that God has my back so that I can pursue peace, not seek revenge, not seek vengeance, not seek to return evil for evil, but instead to feed those that hurt me, my enemies. That now brings us to Romans 13. And out of that thought, let's read verses 1 through 7. This is where Paul then goes. He says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you, not, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, one of the ways this passage is oftenly uh, approached that I want to address is to say, well, this passage calling us to be subject to governing authorities isn't re referring to all authorities. It's only referring to the good ones. Or it's only referring to be subject to government authorities as long as the, the, the laws and the rules and the, the things are all morally good and right and righteous and, and, we can, and then we can uh, be subject to those kind of authorities. But I don't think that that is faithful to the text. I think the text doesn't allow for this picking and choosing of what authorities we are going to subject ourselves to. It seems to be a universal truth. It's say, saying in there in verse 1, every person to be in subject to the governing authority, there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. And there's no little outs there to say, well, the good ones are established by God, but those other ones, no, those aren't. We ask ourselves, well, what about somebody like Hitler? Surely he couldn't have been established by God. Well, Paul wasn't 
unfamiliar with people like Hitler. I mean, throughout Israel's history, they've faced those type of things. They, from Nebuchadnezzar to Jeroboam, even an Israelite leader, and doing evil things, requiring people to worship false gods, to the Babylonians coming in and taking captivity, and the Chaldeans, the, the killing of Jews, evil. And yet Paul says every authority is established by God. See, in in the Old Testament, and we don't have time to go there, but Habakkuk wrestled with this very thing. God, how can you use this evil nation, the Chaldeans? How How can you do your work through such a corrupt and evil regime? And and the prophet wrestles with that through the book, and, and God's answer is, I'm sovereign. I can work my will through every regime. And don't worry about them. Judgment will come to them. And so God does not allow us this picking and choosing of what authorities. This passage, I think, is universally applicable. And I think what I'd like to dig into a little bit, because where our real stumbling block comes in this passage, is this idea of being subject to the governing authority. So I want to dig in on that phrase for just a second. What does it mean to be subject to the governing authorities? And that's where I want to wrestle with uh, this morning. So where else is this same word used? There's probably lots of places maybe that are popping in your mind. The most popular one is in Ephesians 5. Paul uses the same word to be subject to In verse 21 and 22, he uses it a couple of times. One is he tells us as believers to be subject to one another. Same word. Be subject to one another. And then in the next verse, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, what does the word mean there in those contexts? And what I want to say is that I don't think the word means what our mind first goes to. It doesn't mean automatic obedience to all things. It's not a ruler command and you obey type of situation. So if I, my husband, stand up in the morning and I proclaim to my wife Evie, from now on in this household when you wash the dishes, you will wash them standing on one foot. The I, the husband, have spoken. What is her responsibility in that situation? The Bible says be subject to your husband. Does that mean that absolute obedience is required to any crazy whim and thing that I come up with or say? Even if it's not necessarily sinful. Would it be sinful for her to stand on one leg and wash the dishes? No. But does that mean that she now has to comply to this ridiculous order? Not necessarily. To be subject to, this word subject to, has the idea of recognizing the position, recognizing the authority given by God to an office or a person. It doesn't necessarily mean outright obedience. A lot of times it overlaps. But the word be subject to has more to do with my relationship in that position and to that position or under that position than it does just outright, just obedience, like I'm a robot going around doing everything that obedience says. I acknowledge the authority and the the honor and the respect due that that person has been given by God. And so I put in your notes there, this I pulled out of a commentary that I thought was well written, so I'm just going to read it straight up. 
It says, this commentator said it this way, though there is often overlap between submission and obedience, they are not the same thing. You can obey without submitting. And let me pause there for a second. For any of you military or ex-military guys, when I was in the military, there was a thing called malicious compliance. Have you ever heard of malicious compliance? Well, in the military, malicious compliance is when that superior officer gives you an order and you know that that order, he's given it in mistake or he's making a mistake given that order or, or he didn't quite mean it the way that he said it, but you don't like this superior officer. And so you maliciously comply. You obey that order to the perfection just so whatever bad situation was going to come from it falls back on him. It's called malicious compliance. You can be written up and even prosecuted in the military for malicious compliance. See, that is obedience without submission. That's, that is not coming under the authority of the superior officer, even though I obeyed the superior officer. So you see, submission and obedience aren't necessarily the same thing. They don't have, carry the same meaning. So you can obey without submitting, and you can submit without obeying. Submission is about placing yourself under someone's authority and oversight. It's not merely about your action, but it's about your relationship to them. Submission says, you're in authority and I'm not. I will honor and respect that. In verse 2, Paul contrasts this idea of submission with resisting authority. And this idea of resisting authority is, carries the idea of stand in, in defiance against so I can, and if I'm maliciously complying in the military, I can stand in defiance of my commanding officer by obeying the order that he gave. Or I can subject myself, and we're going to look at this more, to uh, authority without obeying. What does that look like? What does that look like? I want to quickly go through there are lots and lots of examples of this in Scripture. And so I want to inform our understanding of what does it mean to be subject to governing authorities, even in cases where we cannot obey. There are a lot of scriptural examples of this. Going back to, uh, one I want to throw out is Moses' parents. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, it references Moses' parents as being people of faith because they hid Moses and refused to comply with the king's edict. The king had issued an edict, kill all the Hebrew babies, throw them in the Nile. And they refused, and they hid the baby, and they kept the baby alive. And you know the rest of that story. But they did not comply with this evil order of the king, and they're called people uh, that were faithful. In the book of Esther, here's, this is an interesting example to me. Esther chapter 4, here you have Esther, and she is heartbroken for hurting, hurting people, people that need somebody, they need a voice. And so Esther violates the law by going into the king. Now, would it have been a sin for her to not violate the law and just not get involved? No, not necessarily. But it was the right thing to do. She stood up for what was right to, to come to other people's defense. And she says in Esther 4.16, she says, I will go into the king, which is not in accordance with the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
So she was going to stand up for the little guy, violate the law, and still be subject to the king because the king had authority to kill her for it. And so she was willing to be subject to this king, yet disobey the law. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know the story. They had to worship and bow down to the idol. They refuse. They refuse. And so they get thrown into the fire. And they say in Daniel 3.17, they say, God, uh, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. What are they acknowledging? They're acknowledging, you king, you have authority to throw us in this, in this fire. And that authority has been given to you by God. And our God is able to rescue us from your hand that has that authority to do that. We are in subjection to you, O king. But we're not going to comply with this order to bow down. Daniel in chapter 6, very similar thing. The, the requirement to pray um, or be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel subjects himself and says, I'm going to pray. And you, king, have authority to throw me into the lion's den. And so he does get thrown into the lion's den. And God rescued him. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, another interesting one to me, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, uh, you know, a prophet of God, but he was calling out government corruption. He was calling out immorality within the government, being vocal about it. Matthew 14 tells us this in verse 3 and 4. It says, When Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So John the Baptist ends up being beheaded by this king. He didn't run off into the wilderness. He didn't form an uprising against the king. He stood on truth and called out evil, called out corruption. And he was in subjection to the king, and he lost his head. Who gave the king authority to take, Herod, king, authority to take off John the Baptist's head? God. God gives the authority. Acts chapter 5, the disciples, Peter and the apostles, they'd been thrown in prison by the uh, leaders. They'd been gotten out, and they're preaching Jesus again. Um, and the, the leaders are saying, we gave you orders. Do not preach in this man's name. And Peter responds in answer and say in verse 29 of chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. Now notice, they are not in defiance to the rulers of authorities. They're not building an uprising to take them down. They are speaking the gospel and truth, and they come and they are standing before the authority, in subject to the authority, and, and speaking truth to them. We must obey God rather than men. Do what you have to do to us. We are in subjection to the governing authorities. Acts chapter 22 and other places, Paul would often, he would even use the world system against itself. When he was being tried, he would claim, hey, I'm a citizen of Rome. You can't, you can't just get away with doing this to me. And so he would, he would work within the government system for the sake of proclaiming the gospel and furthering the kingdom of God. He would defend himself as best he could within the rules of what was allowed by the authority but all the while being subject to 
the governing authorities. And probably the best example of all is Jesus himself. John chapter 19. As Jesus is being tried and he stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilate says to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. Now notice what Jesus is saying. He's agreeing with Pontius Pilate, you have authority to crucify me. And it's been given to you by my Father. Like if that is, I mean, that's mind-blowing to think about when we wrestle with that truth. Probably the greatest evil ever committed by a government to kill the very Son of God himself. And that authority had been given to him by God. And Jesus acknowledges that. He's in subjection to the governing authority, acknowledging that, Pilate, you do have authority to crucify me. And that authority has been given to you by my Father. And he could take it away just as easy. But the implication is Pilate had authority to crucify Jesus, a great evil. And Jesus is in subjection to Pontius Pilate. So what do we take from these things as we look through across Scripture and we see these examples and we come back to Romans 13 where it says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. What does that mean for us, church? And so I want to take some takeaways from this, some lessons for us that we can learn. One of the takeaways is that we are to be subject at all times. We don't get to pick and choose, well, I'm going to be subject to this president, but not that president. I'm going to be subject to this king, but not that king. It is telling us to be subject at all times to every authority because they all are, come from God. What does that subjection look like? placing them and understanding the authority that has been given to them by God. It doesn't necessarily mean always obedience. You know, if the, if the government comes out with a law tomorrow that says, hey, churches, you're allowed to assemble and worship on Sundays, but only if everybody's standing on one foot while they sing. Hopefully our elders would wrestle with that and they would decide, okay, we, we want to honor and subject ourselves to the governing authority, but I don't know necessarily that we're going to obey this. And if that means that we suffer consequences, fines, well, the government has that authority and has been given to them by God. Maybe there are processes that the government has set up for us to go to court about it or to, or to pursue that, just like Paul did. Oh, well, we'll pursue that. But all the while we do that, we will be in subject to and honor and respect the authority given to those people by God. And even if we don't comply, we will still be in subjection to those governing authorities. We will respect. We will honor. We will be the church. And often that means we will suffer the consequences for it. You see all those examples from Scripture, they suffered the consequences of that from those governing authorities. And we as a church will maybe have to do that. We honor them. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, David is being pursued to be killed. David's already been anointed by God to be the king. And he's being pursued to be killed by Saul, who is the current king. 
And David is hiding out in those caves. And remember the story, he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe just to prove to him, hey, I could have killed you. Listen to what David says after that in 1 Samuel 24. He says this, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I would do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to reach out with my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. He's saying this about a king who's actively trying to kill him and all he had done was cut off the robe, a corner of the robe. I'm looking at that saying that's not a big deal. But David's conscience bothered him that he even did that much against somebody who God had put in authority. You know, and it bothers me when I see myself or I see us as the church caught up in speaking so ill of our government, our authorities, wishing hurtful things on people in authority. Doing, uh, you, know, you know, you sometimes want to get off Facebook for all the vitriol that you see and, 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 and so often you see it from fellow believers saying hateful things, spewing hatred against governing authorities. And, and David here felt bad. His conscience bothered him that he even barely took out his hand against the Lord's anointed. What does it mean for you and I to subject ourselves to governing authority? We are foreigners. We are pilgrims. We are missionaries. We are ambassadors in hostile land. Of course they're corrupt. Of course they're evil. It's, it's dominated by Satan. Our role is to, is to be light in the midst of that. And what Paul is telling us in Romans 13 is we be light by as far as it is up to us and we are able, we seek to be at peace with all. We leave vengeance to the Lord. We leave wrath to him. We be subject to the governing authorities at all times, showing them respect and honor. Not necessarily obeying or complying with everything they say because we stand for truth. We proclaim righteousness. We call out evil and we call it evil. We call out corruption and that may come with consequences and that's another point. Is that we may, uh, we may, there may be a price to pay for speaking truth. So we cooperate with authorities as far as is possible for the Lord's sake as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as one in authority. It's for the Lord's sake we do this. We pay our taxes, as it says in Romans 13. They are servants of the Lord that we are speaking ill about and complaining about and talking bad about. These are servants of God. We pray for our government officials. 1 Timothy 2 tells us that we pray for them. We pray for these rulers and authorities so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. We pray for their salvation, that they would know Christ. We need more people to be police officers that are believers, be on board of supervisors that are believers, that are congressmen that are believers because we can restrain evil then. Our influence, we can restrain evil for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. So we pray for them. We pray for our rulers. We pray for our authorities. 
We proclaim truth even when there's a price to pay. As the church, we are the pillar and support of truth. That is our role within this domain of darkness. But most importantly, more importantly, the, the biggest priority for us as ambassadors is what is our job description? If we are truly ambassadors, we are citizens of a foreign land, we are citizens of heaven, and we are called to live in this domain of darkness, being light, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is our job description? What, what is the, an ambassador comes to share a message. What is our message? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 21 says this. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their wrongdoings against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is our job description, church. Our job description is not to be ambassadors that are fighting for gun rights in a hostile world. Not to be an ambassador making sure it's this uh, a politician that has this letter after their name and not this politician with that letter after their name. You know, when we, when we look around the church, it seems like that's what we're battling for. We've allowed ourselves to become this political block as if we're some piece in the puzzle of, of Satan's system. Instead of being the ambassadors for Christ that are living in a hostile territory, proclaiming, be reconciled to God. He paid for your sins. He is giving you, offering you his very righteousness. That is our message as we live these lives being in subject to these governing authorities, we have a message to share. And that's our, our priority. You know, we don't disobey the government in order, you know, the world uses civil disobedience as a political tool. Like if enough people protest and civilly disobey, then we can change the rulers and authorities. Church, we don't civilly, Romans 13 isn't allowing for that. That's being, that's being hostile to the governing authority. When we disobey, we are doing it for conscience sake because we are standing as an ambassador of Christ and we are proclaiming a message, be reconciled to God. And so when we disobey those governing authorities, it's because we are doing the right thing because we are serving our king. We're not seeking to use it as a political tool and it, yeah, just if enough of us disobey, then we'll really change that, you know, this government system. No, we, we are civilly disobeying because we are members of heaven, family of God, and we, are, we have a message to share. And we stand on truth and we speak truth. We call evil, evil, and good, good. And we call people, be ye reconciled to God. He has sent a Savior who died for your sins and offers you righteousness, offers you life. That's our priority as an ambassador of Christ. So how do we live that way? 
And we don't have time to get into all this, but how do you live that way if you're a missionary in Nigeria? How do you live that way if the government shows up to take your guns? How do we live that way if the government requires everybody to have a COVID vaccination? How do we live that way if they require us to wear masks? How do we live that way if, if the government says, you know what, anybody that's a professing Christian is no longer allowed to fly in an airplane? Well, then we drive our cars and we proclaim the message of Christ. And if they outlaw us from driving cars, then we walk and we proclaim the message of Christ because that is our mission as ambassadors of Christ in this world. Now, in 1984, Ronald Reagan was running for re-election, and a famous author and, and preacher preached a sermon entitled, The Second Most Important Day of Your Life. And the message was, the first, day, the first most important day was the day you were saved. The second most important day was the day you voted for Ronald Reagan. I'm telling you, church, we have been being manipulated. Every two to four years, we get re-stirred up like this to, to be used as a political weapon. Instead of being ambassadors for, for Christ that are proclaiming the gospel, the second most important day of your life is not the day you vote. It's the day you saved is first important, and then maybe the second most important day is the day you shared the gospel with your neighbor and they came to Christ. Maybe the third most important day is the day you shared the gospel with your children and they came to Christ. There are a whole lot of days more important than that day you vote. And I'm not saying don't go vote. As Christians, be involved in the political process, but remember our priorities. We are ambassadors for Christ in a hostile world that hates us. And our mission is to proclaim, be ye reconciled with God. And so let me close with this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, here's your job description, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation." Let me pray as the worship team comes back out. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we have been given mercy. Lord, that you have transferred us out of this domain of darkness, Lord, that we were forever lost and enslaved within. You have delivered us from that. You have placed us in your kingdom of light. And Lord, uh, what a privilege, what an honor, what an incredible grace that you would allow us fallen sinners, Lord, that you would call us to be your very representatives in this world, in this darkness, to be your ambassadors with a message of hope. Father, help us to live up to that. Help us to be the church, to be your missionaries in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.